Welcome to Brain Juice, a place where you can learn something new, fun, and interesting every episode. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you're doing well. My name is Neha Shah. I am your host, and I am so excited to share what I am learning with you. So buckle up and prepare to laugh, learn, and have loads of fun. Let's dive right in. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Robert Saunders, Senior Research Director working on healthcare transformation at Duke's Margolis Center for Health Policy. He directs a portfolio of healthcare payment and delivery reform initiatives, which focus on accountable care organizations, alternative payment models for specialty care, new payment and delivery approaches for serious illness care, and translating evidence to policy-relevant options when it comes to choosing your healthcare. Dr. Saunders spoke to one of my global health classes last fall about his time working on the Affordable Care Act, or the ACA, and his reflections on healthcare reform nearly a decade after the ACA's passage. So before we hear from Dr. Saunders, I think it might be helpful to offer a bit of background on the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, is a comprehensive act of healthcare reform that was passed in March of 2010. It has three main provisions. So the first is expanding the availability of affordable health insurance through subsidies. The second is expanding the Medicaid program, which is the U.S.'s public health insurance program for people with low income. And the third is supporting innovative ways to deliver medical care that are designed to generally lower the cost of care. So during and after its passage, the ACA has encountered a lot of controversy, particularly as a result of branding and conflicting perceptions regarding its enactment. The opposing viewpoints surrounding the ACA manifest themselves among members of the public, legislators, and various administrations. So Dr. Saunders is here with me on Brain Juice to further discuss his work in healthcare reform, his journey into the health policy field, and his perspective on the direction of healthcare reform in the future coming off of a decade with the ACA. Hi, Dr. Saunders. Thank you so much for joining me here on Brain Juice today. Happy to do it. So you've worked in health policy for quite some time, right? That's right. So at least, uh, how long has it been now? Probably at least 13 years or so. Wow, nice. What got you into health policy and what does a study of health policy, a career in health policy look like? And I'd say the first thing that I, I advice I always give is that there's no one path into health policy. You know, some uh, careers have a very well-defined path. If you want to be a physician, for instance, you know that you will study pre-med uh, subjects in undergrad. You're going to go to med school next, but then you're going to do a residency, you're going to finish that residency, and then you're going to you know practice and become an attending. Um, Whereas in health policy, there's a lot of different ways to be involved. You know, some folks come in and have a JD, some folks have an MPP, MPH, PhD. Um, there's all sorts of ways that folks get um, involved in it. Mine actually started with my uh, initial time at Duke. So I, I did my graduate uh, study at Duke and I actually was a, a student in physics. So that's where my, what my PhD is in, um, which is not this a standard way to get in health policy, but is a way. Uh, and I, I did a lot of research in, in medical physics, looking at new ways of uh, designing uh, mammography um, uh, imaging devices and looking for the early detection of breast cancer. And Duke was really great also about having opportunities to um, work outside the classroom. So I was involved in the graduate professional student council 
And a big issue while I was at Duke was that uh, graduate student health insurance premiums kept going up every year. And so I became very involved in figuring out, well, why do they keep going up? Are there things our student health center could do differently that, you know, could help us uh, reduce those costs? Um, And that was, uh, in some ways, an early teaching moment for me that then when I finished my PhD and and looked for my first job could help me understand, you know, where are the big issues in in healthcare and and health policy? That's really neat. It's interesting how your path kind of got you there. Uh, everybody's, uh, I feel like everybody's career takes a little bit more of a twist and turn. It all makes sense in retrospect. At the time, it's it's all really confusing and, and difficult. Nice. It's cool that you've landed here. Um, yeah. In that vein, um, I know that you came to my class specifically to talk about the Affordable Care Act and what healthcare reform mm-hmm. could look like. What led you to the ACA or how did you come about sort of the process of drafting it? Yeah, and so I was lucky when I uh, finished grad school and I stuck around for a couple of years at Duke doing what's called a postdoctoral fellowship. Um, after that, I got a fellowship from the American Association for Advancement Science. They give out about 30 some of 30, 35 of these a year for PhDs in various sciences to go work on Capitol Hill. Um, and so there's folks from physics and psychology and biology and you know engineering and the like. Um, and I ended up in an office with a congressperson from New Jersey. Uh, his name is Rush Holt. Um, and he himself was also a physicist and had also gone through this program years before. Um, and, and so he liked having you know, scientists on his staff. And after this was around October of 2008, at the time, Senator McCain and Senator Obama were running for president. And both of them were uh, very much talking about cap and trade and energy policy. And so my boss said, all right, well, we want to make sure we have a really experienced legislative assistant or LA working in that area. You know, the bottom had just fallen out of the finance market and, and, and the housing market. And so we said, all right, well, we want a really experienced uh, legislative assistant working on, you know, banking and finance reform. But healthcare, I know people are talking about that, but I don't think anything's going to happen in healthcare. So that seems like a good place to put a fellow. Um, and you can learn a lot and you'll work with our legislative director who used to have this portfolio and he can help. But, you know, it's going to be a nice learning, quiet year for you. And of course, in retrospect, you know, cap and trade and, and, and energy policy didn't really happen. Um, finance reform did, but took a few years. The ACA was the one that, you know, took off and that became, you know, the focus of that Congress. Uh, the next couple of years. And so part of it was just luck and being at the right place at the right time. Um, and, and my boss sat on one of the three committees of jurisdiction for health-related uh, laws in the House of Representatives, which is the Education and Labor Committee. Um, and that committee worries about things like the employer-sponsored healthcare market, but also some of the training uh, that needs to happen to help for healthcare. So that was how I got involved, and um, it was a really neat opportunity to see, you know, from the early stages of the ACA all the way through the drafting and the House passage, through, uh, you know, some turmoil that happened, especially at the end of 2009, and then ultimate passage in March of, uh, of uh, excuse me, yep, March of 2010. So, um, you know, I, I got to see the whole 
whole process from the beginning. And in fact, still have a copy of the ACA, uh, frame copy of the ACA sitting on my desk that my boss gave me is going away for presents. So I can you know, have the actual legislative text sitting here. Wow. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's a really cool story. Um, and just hearing of how the cards kind of fell in all the right places. I, you know, I think it, it's uh, whenever I talk to some somebody about their career path, the folks with the most interesting career paths are usually the ones who like it's a it's an unusual experience, and also you know luck always plays a role there. That you know you're at the right place at the right time because I could have gone for that fellowship, for instance, a year earlier, and then you know probably would have had a great experience, but it would have been the ACA or you know a couple years later. Also, like they've had a good experience, but wouldn't have been the ACA. Like it's sort of one of those once in a generation things that, like, you're there. This magical thing happens. You hop on the train. You get to be involved, um, and then there you go. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so while you were drafting the ACA and while you guys were working on it, um, what would you say was the most challenging and the most interesting parts of the process? Yeah, I mean, the most challenging part, and this is true today, is, um, you know, the there's a lot of emotions and feelings about any health policy, um, and the ACA was not an exception. Um, and, and so, you know, I was there during the, uh, you know, the Tea Party wave and during a lot of pushback on the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I remember being in the office and, you know, uh, there were crews of uh, uh, folks who felt very strongly uh, against the ACA who came in the office and wanted to meet with the congressperson who happened to be on the floor at the time. And so they met with me because I was the health staffer. Um, and I remember, you know, being circled. And that was uh, where you saw a lot of YouTube videos where people were, you know, taking pictures of staffers or kind of people, you know, trying to get them to break or be angry or give a bad response. Um, and that's a, it's a difficult place to be in. Um, you know, we definitely also were there for some of the very angry town halls in August of 2009, um, which also were really uncomfortable places to be. I mean, I think part of what I, I, I learned was that, you know, many of these people are, are, are concerned about their health and there's a lot of misinformation that happens out there. Um, and it's very difficult to try to, to counter that misinformation. So I would, you know, get mail that, you know, health care from the respondents mail that, you know, is, is clearly misinformation. And it could take me hours to research and figure out where did this even come from? Why do you think that? You know, how do you respond? And it took the person who helped design this information like 15 minutes to just fire it off and start a Facebook post. And you see that today, frankly, that you still see a lot of that. Um, and, and folks don't talk to each other in some ways. Um, and, you know, there's not a process for understanding and carefully vetting information. It can just be fired off into Facebook and the ether is shared 50,000 times or a million times. Um, and in fact, the debate when in reality, if, if we had some, better way of having thoughtful conversation, you know, you could say, okay, well, this, this is clearly wrong. Like this, this is factually inaccurate. Um, but it, it is, um, it fires people up and that's why it gets shared. And so it, in some ways it doesn't matter facts. Um, I'd say that was the biggest 
challenge and the most unexpected. I think the other thing that I was a little unexpected for when I worked on the Hill was there are people that call their congressperson daily, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, and, you know, one barometer, because there aren't, there isn't polling at an individual district level, is, you know, that type of calling and mailing and the like is how you keep it tabs on you know how your your constituents feel um and how the you know your your boss's constituents feel um and you know having to know that that doesn't represent every day you know or even most of the people in the district you know i i don't know how often you call your congressperson um but it, it's not a standard thing um so my one advice is always to encourage people to call and to email because people do read and you know you should be part of that dialogue um but it is also challenging to just even know, like, how do people feel out there in the district? You know, is there anger? Is there happiness? You know, um, it's it's so difficult to figure out how people are actually feeling. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up, especially sort of the issue of misinformation as social media was really emerging and people definitely the uptake of people using it was very high. Would you attribute kind of the controversy and opposition surrounding the ACA to a lot of this misinformation? Are there other factors like pre-existing ideas on healthcare, a new conflict as the bill was passed that would also contribute to the controversy and uh, fiery kind of rhetoric surrounding the ACA? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of health policy in the U.S., you'll see that every time health policy has been discussed, there's been it's been a very emotional uh, experience. You know, you go back to the prior generation when there was health care reform effort, the Clinton health care reform experience, and there were a lot of, again, strong feelings. Um, it was, I, I'd say the difference is that social media allows things to be faster. So if there is um, misinformation, it's allowed to be shared so much more quickly, like within hours and, you know, uh, a day as opposed to some of the other issues in prior um, campaigns may have taken you know weeks, months to, to, to reach that scale. I'd say another difference though for the ACA is, and, and frankly this is why it passed, is there was a lot more engagement of healthcare stakeholders earlier. So if you look at the Clinton healthcare experience, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of the work happened in, in private. Uh, there were these sort of task forces set up to try to identify the, the ideal uh, policy. Um, but by not engaging stakeholders, folks on the outside get nervous. Um, and then you started to see a lot of the pushback happen at the stakeholder level, where whether that's, you know, insurance companies or that's hospitals or physicians or the like, um, because they don't know what's happening and they 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 know that there is potential for things to be bad so um you saw that type of of pushback which then can lead to broader advertising campaigns and the like um so i mean i think in some ways the aca was successful because it was able to engage stakeholders on the other hand it faced new and more challenging issues from social media with misinformation because um, it was just allowed to, that helped the misinformation to move so much more quickly than it did you know, just 20 years before. Yeah. Hmm. It is interesting to see kind of now 10, a little over 10 years later with the ACA and when it comes to healthcare reform and the idea of universal healthcare, um, not only just how social media has sort of amplified voices and really strong voices, especially, but just voices in general um, on people's opinions and things like that regarding healthcare reform. 
in continuity from the ACA. And so now kind of looking back on these past 10 years, this past decade, what do you see as the positive and negative impacts of the ACA? Yeah, I mean, the positive is that you see coverage has expanded and coverage has expanded um, expanded relatively quickly after so the insurance markets were launched and Medicaid um, you know, was expanded in many states. Um, and so the uninsurance rate you know, fell um, relatively consistently with you know, one or two exceptions in the most recent years. Um, and, you know, we just had our, and are coming out of a pretty massive recession, um, which normally is accompanied by massive insurance losses and people losing their employer-sponsored health insurance. Um, and you just didn't see that level of, of trauma in, in this recession. So I, I think, you know, the coverage gains in the ACA are probably the the, the best um, you know, uh, accomplishment it had. You know, there's further that you could do. I mean, you, we still haven't gotten the uninsurance rate to zero or a number that approaches zero. We're still in a in a higher single digit um, than we would like to be. Um, but it's not as high as it was, you know, 10 years ago. The uninsurance rate was getting very high. I mean, we're getting close to a fifth of the population that was technically uninsured in some, at least in some part of the year. So I think that's a big part. I mean, I think the other piece about the ACA, though, where I would say we have unfinished business, um, you know, there's a lot we need to do about uh, helping to improve the cost of health care, although it's a, a bit of a win that the cost of health care, while has increased a little bit recently, has not gone back to like the early 2000s where you were seeing this um, every year, just you know, steep, to, in, in, um, steep increases, you're seeing more you saw flatter uh, cost of care and then a little bit more of an increase recently. I mean, so I think, but there's work to do there. I'd say if there's a really big place where we need to focus, it's on long-term care. So um, the ACA had a provision focused on helping folks um, who were saying you're in life or had really complex diseases and needed, you know, uh, long-term services and supports, you know, nursing homes, care at home that could help them stay in their home, um, for a variety of reasons that never got implemented. Um, but that's uh, that's something that most people don't realize or think about uh, until it's too late, that there there isn't an, an existing way to, to get support for long-term care outside of you know Medicaid, and that will um, help with nursing homes. Um, and so that's a, a big one for the future as well, because that, that will cost a lot of money, and it also is where we don't have as uh, we're not providing as good of care for people in those vulnerable situations as, as we could. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I I really appreciate you kind of bringing all of this up um, and discussing sort of where what next steps can look like with the ACA as a launching point for healthcare reform. And so it's really neat that. A, you've been able to sort of your trajectory has led you here and B, that you can now see where the future of healthcare reform can go um, in, an, in a direction that really expands access for people. I guess my last big question for you sort of came up as I was listening to your story is just that after your life was kind of launched into health policy through the ACA and through your time in Capitol Hill. What has your work looked like recently? Yeah, and, and I, I'd say more recently. So I came back to Duke probably 
we're coming on six years now. Um, and at, for the Margolis Center, so the Margolis Center launched around six years ago um, at Duke, um, with the idea being that we have a lot of pieces of health policy uh, strengths at, at the at the university, but haven't brought them together. Um, I oversee our work looking more specifically at healthcare transformation. So how do you uh, better pay for healthcare? So recognizing that healthcare does cost too much, even though we've, we've, we've helped to stabilize the cost over recent years, there's still long-term concerns over the cost of healthcare. Um, and frankly, the quality isn't quite what you would want for the amount that we're paying for it. I mean, we're paying almost a fifth of the economy on healthcare, um, and yet we're not getting the outcomes that we would like to get. So that's where my focus is now, is what can we do differently um, to help with that? The ACA set up some of the tools that can be used in that area. So for instance, Medicare and, and Medicaid um, now have an innovation center that can launch new ideas and do it much more quickly than we could just, you know, uh, 12, 13, 15 years ago. Um, so that is a, a, a tool that can be used, but there's a lot more that we can do and, and can learn um, to, to make healthcare better. So that's hopefully where we'll see in the next decade. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to come and speak with me today and to tell your story and to also share all of this really interesting information about the ACA and healthcare reform. Happy to do it. I'd like to give another special shout out and thanks to Dr. Saunders for sharing his story and his perspective. I've dropped some links in the show notes on the ACA healthcare reform from today's lens and what options could look like in the future if you're interested in learning more on this topic. I hope that you learned something new today and I hope you learn something new tomorrow and the day after that and every day. Don't forget to check out Brain Juice on Instagram and Twitter at Brain Juice Box or in the show notes. And if you like what you're hearing, you can follow or subscribe to Brain Juice wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review and or rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Brain Juice today. Stay safe, blessed, and healthy. And this is your host, Neha Shah, signing off. <laughs>